Welcome to the Feathered Desert, a podcast all about desert bird feeding in the southwestern region of the United States. Welcome to the Feathered Desert, everyone. Cheryl and I are here with a special guest today. This is our first official interview on yeah. our podcast. <laughs> We're kind of nervous. <laughs> <laughs> and today we have the author of a new bird ID guide called Birds of Arizona, Richard Catcher Taylor. Welcome, Richard. Well, uh, you know, Happy New Year, and I'm pleased to be here. Well, thank you so much. So first of all, Cheryl and I would like to tell you how much we love the book. It's very exciting. Um, we love the fact that it's almost 500 pictures in here. And oh, actually, no, I'm sorry. It's over 900 pictures with 500 birds. And I personally love the fact that you have a male and female when they're sexually dimorphic colors and the juvenile when yeah. the juvenile looks different. Not all books have that. And I thought that was really cool. Well, I certainly appreciate uh, your input. No, I, you know, it's meant to be a handbook for everybody from, um, you know, the beginner to the advanced. And you certainly can't address uh, the birds people are likely to see if you don't include females and immatures. Right. And I love that. Yeah. Not all um, authors think that that, uh, especially the uh, immature juveniles are important. And I love that you in included that. Oh, thank you. So we'll start with our first question with you. Um, what was your inspiration to make this Birds of Arizona ID guide? Well, for low, uh, many decades, for almost 40 years, I was a a professional bird guide and uh, as I traveled around Arizona with uh, tour groups I, I just wish that there was just a handy reference that we could pass around the van that would show uh, not just photographs of the birds in, in you know the most uh, important plumages but also where they occurred planimetrically in the state of Arizona. You know, did we have a chance of seeing a white-eared hummingbird in Flagstaff? Right. Very likely. <laughs> you know, that sort of thing. Do you have a, ch a chance to see a pine grosbeak in the Catalina Mountains north of Tucson? Not very likely. So I wanted to get that in there, and then I also wanted to put them into habitats that could be easily defined by elevation so uh, you know even though you might get a cactus wren at the bottom of of mount lemon or at the bottom uh you know of uh the grand canyon you're you're definitely not going to get one up on the rim up on the mogion rim the rim of the Grand Canyon, the Mogollon Rim, or the top of the Catalina Mountains, just a few miles away from where our initial uh, cactus rim was mentioned. Nice. Well, definitely, I agree that you have accomplished that with this book. I yes. think it has great graphics in it as well. Oh, thank you. 
<laughs> so, Rick, obviously, it, you've shared that you've done um, birding throughout Arizona for um, a long time. And I was just wondering what's your favorite thing about birding? birding? What brings you back to it? And what started you on it? Well, gee, there's, uh, you know, many threads make the rope in this particular case. I started really getting serious about birding because I like the people that were my clients, you might say. When I was a visitor contact specialist for the U.S. Forest Service, in the Chiricahua Mountains. They were such nice people. They were so intelligent. They were, you know, humorous, and yet they had a sensitivity to the environment that was, uh, I guess, inspirational. And I wanted to be of use to these people, not just, you know, put out your fire when you're through with it, um, not just the bare bones of my my job description i wanted to be able to offer them really concrete information about where they could find the special birds they were looking for so that's one thread another thread and it's akin was that the most popular bird that they were looking for was the elegant trogon and I launched an eight-year-long investigation into the life history and population on, you know, the uh, range of elegant trogons in Arizona and the United States. So through the trogon, because I wanted to know about the bird community in which it existed, I learned about a great many other birds. And... Um, I even traced the, the uh, trail of the Trogon south to northwestern Costa Rica, the southern limits of the elegant Trogon's range, hmm. where not only did I meet a lot of wonderful people, but I also uh, learned about bird communities. And in order to do that, I had to identify all the other birds. Oh, cool. <laughs> So that's yet another thread. I mean, I, I had been looking at birds since, you know, childhood. I was interested in great blue herons and great oh. horned owls, as I think all, all kids are. We're all struck by them. Yeah, they're such elegant and statuesque, large birds. So Right, and you don't even need binoculars for them. And actually, I'm back to doing a lot of what, uh, Ted Scott, a friend of mine from the American Birding Association, calls bare-knuckle birding, where you go out there even without your binoculars and just try to see birds uh, with your unaided eyes nice. and with your ears. Because uh, birds, like humans, are chatterboxes. Yes. They uh, communicate in uh, at a frequency that's very audible. It's almost exactly the same as uh, human voices. And <laughs> just as an aside, think if a uh, plumbius vireo had a voice commensurate to its uh, size, if it was the size of a human, whole mountains would, would tumble and fall, I'm afraid. <laughs> Their wow. voice, even if they weigh an ounce or less, is loud enough 
that it's uh, equivalent to a human voice in volume. Nice. That's true, because you can hear the bird in. Yeah. I mean, birds are cool. Oh, They're just all yeah. cool. <laughs> Well, <laughs> I, I've got a highly prejudicial audience, I'm afraid. But <laughs> Yeah, we're no, a little prejudiced as well. <laughs> the other thing was that as I got into birding, and I've hinted at this, um, I... I found that it was uh, a doorway into people's homes and into their thoughts. It was a window into understanding the mechanics of nature, the basic necessities, what uh, Abraham Maslow, Maslow, the uh, old sociologist, you know, would have ranked as a necessity, uh, food and shelter, you know, warm enough apparel and and birds change their apparel with the seasons you know to ward off uh seasonal fluctuations in climate so uh it, it really deepened my understanding of not only the people with which i coexisted and in other cultures as well but it also deepened my appreciation to the basics that I needed, that the people around me needed. Uh, it explained human immigration. It explained a lot. Wow, that's very cool. It shows a connection between humans and birds that we kind of all need and want the same things. Yeah. And the great thing about birds is that for the most part, they're diurnal, they're active when we're active. And um, they're fairly obvious. They make noise and they wear bright colors off times in order, like us, to attract mates. Yeah. <laughs> Try to groom themselves throughout the day, trying to look good. Yes. <laughs> we can we take can, a little yeah, bit. We yeah. could learn a little bit from <laughs> self-care, that's for sure. Yeah, well, I, I know I can. I... I I, uh, I'm always watching and saying, you know, that really does apply to myself. I mean, you know, yeah. or to a situation I find myself in. So as you've just stated before, you've been birding for a while in Arizona. Do you have a particular region that is your favorite that you like to bird in? You know, I used to lead tours to the Galapagos as well. And the very first naturalist in the Ecuadorian government insists that every boat has an Ecuadorian naturalist, a trained bilingual naturalist aboard. When he was asked, which of the Galapagos islands do you like best? He said, it's a set. He said, I love them all. If you remove any one, the... Uh, the set, the archipelago, would not be as impressive if you remove uh, any of the gems from a, a necklace or a collar. The collar is diminished. So to pick a region of Arizona is my favorite when, you know, <laughs> they're all so wonderful. I mean, the Grand Canyon area is, you know, awe-inspiring. The southeastern Arizona border ranges, the Sky Islands, with their hint of the Sierra Madres, where I've traveled so often. 
our wonderful, the austere deserts in the southwestern corner of the state, you know, with that uh, coastline of the Colorado River and the unfortunately shrinking reservoirs along it, you know, sucking in uh, marine species like the boobies virtually every year. I mean, how could you pick the White Mountains, the San Francisco Peaks? They're all so special and so unique. And they all have their own bird communities that, you know, a book like this tries to open the window to. You certainly can't encompass everything there is to see or know about the birds of Arizona, but you can make it easier to see and understand what's there. And as I said, it's a field guide, but it's also meant to be sort of a handbook to what's in the state of Arizona. Well, I think that's an absolutely excellent answer to that question. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I couldn't pick. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad to hear it. No, people shouldn't probably pick. I mean, you need a place to call home. Yeah. But then uh, it's wonderful to uh, to tour about, to travel, and, and to experience everything else that makes home more dear. But it also uh, opens your eyes to the issues that all the corners of Arizona have, and what we have in common and what we don't, Yeah, what makes us unique. Nice. So I'm, I'm living in uh, the southeastern corner of Arizona, but that doesn't mean that I, I don't enjoy, you know, Lake Mead. As yes. It, as it shrinks. Oh, yes. So uh, do you have a favorite Arizona bird? <laughs> Esther, well, we just asked that question about the regions. <laughs> <laughs> so as you probably surmised, no, I studied elegant trogons for eight years, and they still cause me on occasion to almost gasp with pleasure when I see them. And certainly, uh, you know, to say, well, you know, I'm immune to them now. Exposure, you know, like a good marriage, it does not make you immune to the allure of uh, the, your study species. But uh, no, I mean, I'm uh, utterly engaged. I have one Rivoli's hummingbird overwintering this year at my home. And I'm utterly engaged with that, that particular species. I find much to admire about it. If you asked me this morning when I watched that, oh, that gleaming, iridescent, brilliant green emerald throat, you know, flashing at me, I might have said, a Rivoli's hummingbird. You know, I might have just said that. But, oh, my gosh, you know. I find so much to admire in what you might consider to be drab species as well. You mentioned verdants, which I'm sure you'd have up there near Apache Junction. Yes. Uh, good number. And my gosh, if you really examine an adult verdant, it'd be hard to find a more charming species than that with that oh, yellow yes. head, a little patch of chestnut on its shoulders 
Yeah, they're amazing. I love them. They are good. They're really good. And, you know, I'm sure that this is built into our genetics, but, you know, we respond to small things human as a species ourselves. Humans yeah. are geared up to enjoy small things, think they're precious. I remember my mother used to say, dynamite comes in small packages when I worried about how small I was as a five-year-old. I grew, but I, yeah. <laughs> I, I attained normal stature. In fact, I, I'm afraid I may still be growing, but that's another topic. <laughs> <laughs> well, we have one last question for you. Okay. In making this book, Birds of Arizona, do you have any funny stories of maybe unusual circumstances you found yourself in when trying to get <laughs> just the right shot? Well, um, you know, first I should say that I took approximately one-sixth of the photographs. Photographers from throughout Arizona, including some of whom are professionals and, and good friends, contributed photo art to this book. Okay. But uh, I have uh, a couple of funny stories about the book. As far as my photos, they're often catches catch can you know they're they're often very much unplanned and unlike my friends who are professionals and i i'm going to give myself some credit and say i think i've taken some pretty good photos over the years i'm an opportunist as many birds are i just uh grab what's available i'm not a sit and wait ambush predator sitting there for hours waiting for the photograph to reveal itself to me when when i see a potential photograph i just grab it and that's advice right there but when i uh, actually aim my camera at birds i don't aim for the eye necessarily what i found is that i'm more apt to achieve focus if i aim at the contact point between the feet and the ground hmm. Um, and, uh, I can't, I'm not a photographer enough to explain why that works for me, but if I just try to focus on the eyeball, it'll focus beyond the, the puny little head of a bird, <laughs> you know, five feet behind on right. a blade of grass or something. If I actually manage to get its feet where they're attached to a branch or to the dirt, I actually, uh, tend to have a better photograph in the end with a sharper eye. Hmm. That makes a lot of sense, actually. Yeah, it does. It's a nice tip. Well, for me, and I'm, I'm not using professional-grade equipment. I have a very nice uh, Sony RX10 camera. Uh, it's not inexpensive, but it's certainly not the kind of uh, weaponry that I see professionals out there with with their three meter long lens practically. Right. Now I'm exaggerating, but they're meter long lens. Right. Yeah. And you know, it just uh, depends. I mean, they are taking photographs with art high up in their scale of what the they're trying to achieve. And and 
I often take photographs just to document something at a particular cross-section of time and space that I just want to remember. Nice. Yeah. Well, I want to say thank you very much yeah, for joining you. us on the Feather Desert. We truly appreciate it. And we also want to throw a shout out to February 2023. You're going to be up in the Phoenix area with Desert Rivers Audubon, right? Doing some... That is absolutely correct. All right. And... Valentine's, the evening of Valentine's. And I, I kind of hope that People are enjoying their Valentine as much as uh, the meeting. <laughs> yes, I'm sure. You know, there's a little love in birds. They go together. So I think it'll work out well. Uh, make it a date. I believe that you're going to be coming to the Wild Birds Unlimited store in Mesa, Arizona, sometime that day to do a book signing. That's also correct. You have your facts in order, ma'am. All right. Well, we'll definitely put that out there. And uh, we certainly hope that you have a great time up here in our area. And we're looking forward to meeting you at the Wild Birds Unlimited store. Okay. Well, thank you very much. Uh, it's really been fun to talk to you. And it's, it's always nice to have to unearth your motives. What were you really thinking? What were you really doing when you said or did that? And in my case, uh, you know, the last 40 or 50 years of birding. Nice. Well, thank, thank you. you so much for having me. And uh, I do want to wish you a happy new year and uh, a prosperous new year and a peaceful new year. Oh, well, thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Same to you. Yes. <laughs>